And as you see that, I would invite you this morning to turn to three short passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3, verse 1, and then Jeremiah 3, 12 through 14, and then Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. So 3, verse 1, 3, 12 through 14, and then 4, 1 through 4. And as you turn to our passages this morning, I want you to know that the context of our passage is what we might call the emotional turmoil of God's desire for us. Uh, now, I know that turmoil isn't uh, the best word to use because that implies that Jesus isn't in direct control of his own emotions and responses, and I don't want to imply that. At the same time, I want to do justice to the way that God reveals himself to us in this context, which uh, is as a husband whose wife has not only cheated on him multiple times, but who has tried to use lies and manipulation to keep the marriage going so that she could continue using him. Today, when we see a relationship built on lying and manipulation and use, a relationship that's built on what I can get out of you by any means necessary, we tend to call that an emotionally abusive relationship. And I think it's helpful to see that God chooses to reveal himself in ways that those of us who have been emotionally abused or suffer abuse in some form will find familiar. So if you, read Jer if you were to read Jeremiah 3, verse 1, straight through through chapter 4, verse 4, you'd see that God expresses anger and he expresses sadness, that he's ready to be done with the whole thing, and, that he, and he talks in ways that sound exasperated and resigned to the fact that this is doomed to failure. But he also expresses love and a genuine desire for repair and expresses hope for a turnaround. And you'd see that these emotions are not expressed in a logical progression. As commentators note over and over again, these emotions are expressed in waves, which I think mirror our own waves of emotion that we feel when we are hurt and betrayed and used. And I want to say that as an introduction because that's the context that God's call for repentance comes in. And it's the context that God's, God offers forgiveness in. A context where forgiveness is deeply costly and maybe even dangerous because who would take back an abusive spouse? It's also a context where repentance is deeply costly too. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to open yourself not only to the shame of admitting your harmful, manipulative, dangerous behavior because that shatters the illusion of your own goodness and opens you up to all kinds of sacrificial actions of uh, restoration, but also to change behaviors and response patterns and desires is extremely hard, right? Repentance is sacrificial and costly. And so that's why this morning we're going to reflect on the risks that come with both repentance and reconciliation. And we're going to do that by taking our passages in order. First, we're going to look at Jeremiah 3, verse 1. And we're going to see that God wants to protect us from exploitation and abuse. Second, we're going to see that Jesus risks his own exploitation to have us reconciled. And then finally, we'll hear Jesus call us to risk guilt and shame and sacrifice in order to express repentance. And those are up there on the wall, right? Yes, those points? Awesome. So let's read Jeremiah 3, 
uh, verse 1 and then verse 12 through 14 of chapter 3 and then verses 4, 1 through 4, and we'll reflect on these points together. So first, Jeremiah 3, verse 1. <clears throat> if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. And now starting in verse 12 of chapter 3. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And now finally, chapter four, verses one through four. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Thus far the reading of what truly can only be God's own word. Let us pray that he would write it on our hearts. Our trying God, we thank you for your word, which you have given us for our instruction and edification so that we can learn more about who you are and how you have acted and the kind of actions that you have taken to save us and uh, the kind of actions that you desire from us in response. And Father, we pray, therefore, that you would help us uh, to see clearly uh, the, the way in which you have taken a, a deep, uh, radical step of love towards us and how we are then empowered through that love to take a deep and radical step of repentance in trust, knowing that you meet us with grace. Father, may the words of my mouth now as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and reflect and respond to your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to look at is Jeremiah 3, verse 1. So a couple of things here. First, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3 represent Jesus' case in divorce court where he's proving why he has every legal obligation, not just right, but obligation to send Israel away. And I say that because chapter 3, verse 1 is the legal grounding for his case. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, would he return to her? Would not the land, that land, be greatly polluted? So here God is summarizing a portion of Deuteronomy 24, which deals with some laws about divorce and remarriage. And now I know that when we read sections like 3 verse 1 of Jeremiah or Deuteronomy 24, that like the importance of these laws is not immediately obvious to us all the time. Like why would the land be greatly polluted if a man divorced his wife and then later wanted to remarry her? Like, why is that sin? Why is that a problem? I'm going to avoid preaching two sermons here. So I'm just going to tell you what I think is going on in this part of the divorce laws in Deuteronomy 24. I think this part of Deuteronomy 24 
that God is summarizing here in Jeremiah 3 verse 1 is about protecting spouses who are in danger. We would use the word abuse spouses today. I know that's not the, the word the Bible uses, but it's not a new practice. Abuse has been going on since the fall, and God recognizes it, and he takes steps to protect those who suffer from danger. And this interpretation rests on a few remarks by some ancient rabbinical interpretators that notice the difference in these texts from when a man divorces his wife and sends her away, and in, as in our passage in a divorce where a man divorces his wife and she goes away from him. And the idea here is that the wife is going away because she's fleeing from danger. As a matter of fact, there's even a couple interesting intertextual comparisons that these rabbinical commentators make between Pharaoh sending Israel away and Israel going from him <laughs> and this wife going from her husband after she has been sent away. And let's just be really clear. If you're comparing a husband to Pharaoh, then attaching our word abuse is probably not much of a stretch, right? The genocidal maniac who tried to wipe out a, a population. Uh, so in that light, notice what's happened. This woman has been freed from a bad relationship that many recognize is probably dangerous and has now been remarried, we're to assume, in a good one. And now her previous husband, who some ancient commentators compared to Pharaoh, wants her back. And given the lack of repentance, I think we need to read this as her former husband wanting her back, probably because he's tired of not having someone to abuse and order around. And that's especially true, I think, because Jesus tells us that the land would be greatly polluted if this happened. And that word for pollution usually describes the way that sin corrupts society and culture and spreads from one generation to the next. And as we all know, and as our ancient forefathers and foremothers knew, and as God declares to us in the Bible, abuse, sin, spreads exactly that way, being passed from family to family down through the generations unless it's checked by the grace of God. Okay, so all that said then, what's the point of this law that God is referencing in verse 1? The point is that Jesus wants to protect his people from danger and from abuse. Uh, but not only that, he wants to protect his people from being manipulated back into an abusive relationship. So by making it a law, Jesus took away one of the main weapons that dangerous people use. Manipulation, emotional abuse, threats. See, Jesus set this woman free, and you cannot re-enslave her. You know those backwards Old Testament laws? They are so regressive and oppressive. If only, if only we, they had the modern life that we have today. Uh, okay, so now look at the way that, that Jesus is applying this law here. Because obviously Jesus is not the abusive spouse, right? He's not the one lying and cheating and manipulating and using these good gifts in order to increase lying, cheating, and manipulating. He's on the receiving end. And so here's the point. Jesus is saying, I have no obligation to take you back. Not simply because I'm God and can do whatever I want to do, but because you are dangerous. You are manipulative. You are abusive. 
And if I continue this relationship, both your present culture and society and the coming generations will be polluted by your violence and idolatry and by your lying. And I will continue to suffer from your sin. And I have an obligation, Jesus is saying in this law, to protect people from sin. And, uh, and when I count, have counseled spouses, abuse spouses in the past, this is precisely the logic that I use, um, that I I've, believe I've learned correctly from Jesus, which is for your own protection, you need to leave. And not only that, but for the sake of the redemption of your spouse, you need to leave. Because with you gone, their opportunity to sin greatly decreases. You're not there to abuse anymore. And with that decrease in sin, the opportunity for uh, repentance greatly increases. And of course, when I say that, I usually get cut off with some expression like this. But if they say I'm sorry, do I have to go back? And my answer is, well, no, not necessarily. Because of texts like this. Because what texts like this expose is an important distinction that the Bible sometimes makes between forgiveness and reconciliation. Most of the time they're used synonymously, but not always. And when they're not, here's the distinction. Forgiveness is releasing someone from judgment and guilt. Reconciliation is welcoming someone back into your life. And as a general rule, forgiveness does not require repentance. And the clearest place to see that is on the cross. When no one was saying sorry, when no one was admitting sin, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus tells us, as I have forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Did you hear that in Colossians 3 in our call to confession this morning? But reconciliation does require repentance. And further, just to add one more thing, reconciliation does not always mean recreating the same kind of relationship that you once had. Obviously, most of the time, that's the goal, right? That's the gold standard. That's what we all want. But when you get into dangerous relationships, like we have in our text this morning, we should expect that reconciliation will not necessarily look like the original relationship. And Jesus has these laws because he wants to protect his people from violence and oppression. And because he wants to create a situation where repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation in their best forms possible can be grown in the most fruitful ways possible. And I say all of that not only because it will make us more biblically faithful counselors, but also because then it, I think it really highlights how amazing Jesus is in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. And here we come to our second point, which is Jesus risks his own exploitation to have us reconciled. So after laying out in this divorce case that we are dangerous partners in this relationship, that we are prone to manipulation and lying and cheating, after showing that we're more interested in using God than loving God, and after reminding us that no one, no one thinks it's a good idea to take someone like us back in a marriage, right? In fact, God forbids it so that those who are being abused will be protected. But then, what does God say starting in the middle of verse 12? Return faithless Israel 
declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. And I will not be angry forever. Before we've repented, before we've acknowledged our guilt, Jesus invites us back into a relationship with him. In fact, as ancient and modern commentators have all noted, Jesus breaks his own law here, which he just cited, to invite us back into a reconciled relationship with him. This is not a small thing that Jesus does. And then from there, I want you to notice that the thing that moves Jesus to open himself back up to us in forgiveness and reconciliation is not law or morality. And it's certainly not us, right? No one has repented yet. What opens Jesus up to us again and again and again and again and again is God's love and desire for us. And in that, like, I really like this sentence from uh, Walter Brueggemann on this part of Jeremiah. He says, Yahweh, which is the Lord, the Lord's powerful yearning risks defilement for the sake of the covenant. My friends, we need to pause and think about this. To invite us back, not simply to forgive, but to invite us back, Jesus knowingly violates the wisdom of his own Torah. He opens himself up again to shame and abusive behavior, not because of any logic or because of moral imperative, not because of duties or vows, and not even because he knows his own redemptive plan. If you read this, there's no point in which the father is sort of looking into the future toward the cross, going, oh, the cross is coming, so I'll put up with this for now. No, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. This is the thing in God that created the cross. This is the thing in God that created the covenant promises. This is a view of God's love. And I just want to add this. We tend to minimize what God endures to reconcile himself to us. Probably because we think, uh, when we think of God, we tend to think in sort of these emotionally inert theological terms, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, unchangeable in his being, all true, not exactly emotionally powerful things, <laughs> right? Here, in ways we can understand, we see that Jesus is revealing something of the emotional cost of his love for us. And we see that for God to love us is expressed in ways that we can only describe as risky, or if it was anyone other than God, foolish. But still, our triune God enters into that risk because he loves us. And then from there, think about how the Bible tells us that the love of God is unfathomable. It's unsearchable. It stretches higher than the heavens. It's wider than the seas. Think about the fact that the Bible says that God is love. And you'll see that, that an aspect of that love that maybe you didn't notice before. And then maybe from there you'll be moved to profound thankfulness at the fact that God enters knowingly risks a cost to show his love for us. But not only, I hope, profound thankfulness, but also hopefully as you reflect on that profound change, and here we come to our final point, which is Jesus calls us to risk guilt 
and to work hard to return. So there's a lot that we could say here on these verses in chapter 4, 1 through 4, but I'm going to limit myself to just a few things. Uh, the first is an observation about the power of God's love. So to get at this, I want you to notice that we see a, a beautiful demonstration of God's love, right? I'm obligated to send you away, but come back anyway, right? We see a beautiful demonstration of God's love before we get a call to repentance. And the reason for that is, I think, well expressed in the fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast, which I learned from G.K. Chesterton. Bonus points if after the service you can tell me what work in Chesterton this quote I'm going to give you is, is found from. Uh, so Chesterton pointed out that in the fairy tale, the non-Disney version, it's Belle's love that changes the beast from a brutal, frightening animal into someone who is compassionate and kind and someone who could finally appropriately return the love that was given. And then Chesterton said this, which struck me, has stuck with me ever since I read this my sophomore year in college. The point of the fairy tale is that you have to love someone before they become lovable. You have to love someone before they become capable of returning the love that you give them. Now, while that is obviously not totally true of human love, and the way that human love affects human relationships. I, it is mostly true, but it's not totally true, sadly, as we all know. It is certainly always true of the way that God's love affects our relationship with him. Before we loved God, before we were lovable, he loved us. It's the love of God that saves and transforms and shapes us into a people who can finally return and appropriately express love back to him and to other people. And I want to say that because I've been trying to maintain a distinction between God and us, while at the same time, you know, trying to be faithful to the way that God expresses and reveals his own emotional life. And here I think that distinction between God and us is incredibly important. There is a profound difference, isn't there, between what our love is capable of and what God's love is capable of. See, God's love is just transformative in ways that ours just simply are not. It transforms hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It transforms the cross into forgiveness and the tomb into resurrection. And it transforms as we'll see as Jeremiah goes on, a wayward, adulterous wife into someone who is faithful. There's a reason why this amazingly intense and even radical love of God comes before his teaching us how to repent. Because God's love is capable of producing awe and thankfulness and transformation. And I say that because it shows us, secondly, that repentance then is very much a response to God's love. It's not earning God's love. It answers God's love, uh, which means that if you want repentance in an area of your life to grow, you first need to begin by reflecting on the way that God has shown his love to you. A love that risks your faithlessness, your manipulation your use because it longs for you. Third and very quickly, and in, and in terms of growing repentance, God's love is, 
is also aimed then at producing a very particular kind of response of repentance, which is outlined in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. Uh, so God's love makes us lovable in a very particular kind of way, which we might summarize this way. Here's your second sermon. I'm going on vacation, so you'll only be one, one sermon shy when I come back. Uh, God's love produces repentance that removes, uh, repentance that promises, and repentance that pursues. Repentance removes, promises, pursues. So first, repentance removes. That's just the first half of verse 1 of chapter 4. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And here, this is just like we talked about last Sunday, uh, where Israel was trying to keep a relationship with God and with her idols. And that effort of trying to maintain both kinds of relationship is often what God calls wavering in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying is clearly, get rid of the idols, remove them. Because the right response to a husband who opens himself back up to a reconciled relationship with his manipulative, abusive, adulterous wife is for her to stop the affair. Right? Second, God's love moves us to promise. That's verse 3. And if you swear, or if you promise, as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Uh, so it's important here to see that this promise, this oath, that Jesus wants them to make is not just a generic promise. In the first three chapters, as we've been kind of seeing, I think, as we've been going through the book, God has been saying that Israel has been rejecting her identity as his people. They've been lying. They've been oppressing the poor and the widow. And they've been promoting the worship of idols, right? Each promise addresses each sin. So swearing as the Lord lives is shorthand for religious loyalty. We just celebrated the 4th of July. So we can think about politicians and soldiers when they talk about how they took an oath, which is shorthand for taking an oath to our republic as expressed in the Constitution, right? It's the same thing here. Replace your idolatry by promising to be loyal to Jesus and by promising to teach that loyalty to others. Actually, I should have thought of this beforehand. We just had membership vows again. That's part of what Jesus is telling us to do. Do you want to follow Jesus and love him? Yes, I do. That's part of how we express repentance as, as, a, as members in Jesus' church. Um, and not only that, replace your lies by promising to be truthful. Replace your oppression by promising to act justly and righteously. And replace your rejection of your covenant identity by promising to embrace your covenant identity. Now, obviously, I could expand on those, but I'm going to save that for future sermons. Suffice it to say here, the point is that when we see God's love, the right way to repent is to confess and then to promise to replace our specific sins specifically with righteous acts in their place. And then finally, responding well to God's redemptive love is to pursue faithfulness to that promise. And that's the second half of verse 3, and it's also the first part of verse 4. God says, Break up the fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Now, again, a lot could be said here. I'm going to say just two things because this is going to show up over and over again in Jeremiah. The first is these metaphors are all about the work that we need to do 
to be receptive to a relationship with God, right? The imagery of the farmer is most likely about actively listening and reflecting on God's word. Hearing it, even when we don't want to. In the imagery of circumcising your heart is about actively applying and doing God's word. Even when it's hard. Cir- circumcising yourself, just think about that. For those of you who know it, that is not something like, oh yeah, I'll just do that real quick. There's a pain involved in the image. It's not easy. Right? Which leads me to the second thing. None, also, not only are they not easy, none of these images are instantaneous. And I think this is very important. Breaking up foul ground with a plow takes time. Pulling up weeds takes time. The idea of circumcising your heart, since you can't use an actual knife, that takes time. We can have this sense that God demands instantaneous repentance, right? Where one second you're sinning and next, whew, I'm in glory. Everything's good. The sin is gone, right? That is not the picture here. Jesus recognizes that manipulative behavior, lying, idolatry, all the rest are just not put away overnight. While the promise can happen overnight, the living out of that promise takes place over time. Repentance is something we grow in. It's not something you did once and you're over that now, praise Jesus. It's something you do every single day. Every day when I wake up, I have to say, today I want to be an obnoxious, selfish jerk. Jesus, help me to be a not obnoxious, humble... Face it. Repentance means being honest about what we've really been doing. And then it means committing to change. And it means working for change. And this is why reconciliation is hard for everybody. It's hard for the person that's inviting you back. It's hard for you as you try to earn the right, or not earn, but live into that new relationship that they are trying to ask you to come into. And it's why... If we think about reconciliation and repentance as anything less than what Jesus says is dying in Christ so that we can be raised in Christ, we're not thinking about it profoundly enough. And now my second and last observation. Uh, Take that point about repentance being a process over time, dying to sin, being brought back to life in Jesus. And think back to our first two points. Who would open themselves up to an abusive spouse again if they had not already demonstrated prolonged acts of repentance? No one. In fact, it would be foolish and dangerous if we did that. But God is not like us. 
His love is transformative in ways that ours are not. And his love is so radical that not only does he welcome us back before we've repented, he welcomes us back in order to produce repentance. God's love is amazing. So let's join together then in awe of God's radical, sacrificial, reconciliation-producing love. And let's respond with thankfulness and with honest words of actions and repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Our trying God, we come before you this morning uh, mourning the fact that uh, we hear our own actions in your charge against us. Lord, we know uh, that we are not always grateful and obedient, um, Lord, and we know that our disobedience is not always simply passive, but uh, is often active and uh, harmful and sinful and manipulative and using. And Lord, we pray, therefore, um, not, not only that you would forgive us, but that you would give us a fresh vision of your love which sees us in our dangerousness and says, I should let you go, but instead I will welcome you back so that I can change you. Father, there is none like you in heaven or on earth. There is no one who is so great or kind or amazing as you are. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to get a clear vision of your love. We ask that you would help us to respond with that uh, in growing repentance that looks more and more like Jesus so that together as a body we will grow in thankfulness to you and in conformity to Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.